Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, I am so excited about today's episode and I can't wait to get into it and share it with you. But I just wanted to remind you before we get going today to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter, EMS Pulse. Right now we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering, lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first-time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com. Lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys, and the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy today's episode. Cheers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest has been described by the Wall Street Journal as the real Indiana Jones. His lifelong accomplishments are so impressive that it's hard to pick just a few. At age 12, he was the youngest Eagle Scout in American history and traveled to the White House to meet President Eisenhower. At 14, he was the youngest person to summit Matterhorn in the Swiss Alps. And in 1979, he had led an expedition retracing for the first time in history Hannibal's route over the Alps with elephants. In 1981, he set the world record for the most northerly parachute jump at 90 degrees north, free-falling right into the North Pole. And in 1996, he defeated both Vladimir Putin and his KGB bodyguard in an arm wrestling match in Kelly's Irish Times Bar on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Many would say that he is one of the greatest explorers and most interesting man of modern times. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Jack Wheeler. Jack, how are you doing? Um, I'm okay, except I'm not so sure after that introduction. <laughs> I did a lot of research to do that introduction, Jack. I like that introduction. Uh, okay, well, here we go. Jack, why don't you take a couple of minutes, and I know I've, I've uh, already given a bit of backstory, but how did you become an explorer? How did you get into geopolitics and, uh, and traveling so extensively? Oh, good heavens. Um, well, I'm always, you know, I'm always a little embarrassed about that Indiana Jones stuff because, um, I mean, he's a fictional character. I mean, he never loses his hat, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm actual real, and, and so... Uh, some of the stuff may be compared to that, but I'm a, you know, real person with all the 
flaws and stuff like that that comes with everybody else. But at any rate, um, uh, I grew up in uh, a suburb of Los Angeles, Glendale, California, a uh, very prosaic place, never knew much about the world. Uh, and um, I read a book when I was 14. Uh, it was by uh, uh, a famous adventurer back in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, it was an old book, but a friend of my father's gave it to me. He thought it might be fun. And it was called, it was, uh, the man was Richard Halliburton. And um, he just talked about all these places in the world. And the way he described them just made, all, it was a revelation. I've never gotten it uh, to this day, how eye-opening it was that this the world we have is a place of endless magic and adventure and You'd never ever get to the bottom of it, uh, and um, uh, that's that has stuck with me all these years. Uh, people, you know, people collect things. Uh, they collect stamps, or, you know, coins. Uh, they have collections, um, and I kind of made up my mind uh, back then that I um, wanted a collection of extraordinary experiences. Uh, real adventures, uh, really extraordinary memories and experiences to fill my life up with, because that you can't take away. You can lose your stamp collection, but you can never lose what you've done with your life. And so um, uh, that's been my my whole life. Um, when I was when I was fourteen, um, my father worked with a. Uh, I was a producer at a television show and television station, a local television station in Los Angeles. And um, he uh, figured out a way to get uh, us visas to the Soviet Union, to Russia, and to, I mean, Europe is easy, but actually in 1958, quite frankly, it was very exotic for a family to go to Europe back then. Sounds amazing, but that's the way it was. Jet travel had just just begun. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure we did. We went on uh, a Lockheed Constellation or something. Propeller it took all you know two two or two days to get to Europe. At any rate, he convinced the television station to have a television show, a series that he would film on American family in Europe, but particularly the Soviet Union. It was that was a big deal. That was a big deal to go to the Soviet Union back at the very height of the Cold War. And so uh, I got to meet kids at school, uh, uh, and they were very nice to me. Uh, but I had two experiences that, uh, that were pretty revelatory. Uh, the first was the kids in the school were so nice, and they'd been taught to hate Americans, and we're the great enemy of the world, etc. Uh, and uh, But they were really nice to me. And so I got out my pen, my little papermate uh, ballpoint pen, and I had a little notepad. I was getting their names from the interpreter we had. Her name is Vadia. And uh, I noticed as I was writing their names down, again, their name, they were all looking at my pen. And, and so I asked Vadia, I said, Vadia, why are they looking at, at my pen? And she took it and she looked at it. She studied it and she said, we don't have such things in Soviet Union. And it took me a, a, a little while to process that. I mean, wait a minute. 
This is a country that is threatening the United States with nuclear annihilation, and they don't know how to make a 25-cent ballpoint pen. Something is wrong. Something doesn't make sense. And, um, and then we went to Red Square, and we went to Lenin's tomb. And back in those days, in 1958, Stalin was still in Lenin's tomb. He, Khrushchev took him out in 61. But I'll never, ever forget it because there was this long line. We're the foreign guests, so we get to go in front of the line. And it was entering a sacred religious shrine. And everybody was so quiet. And nobody said a word. And it was just a shuffling of feet. And there was Stalin on the left and the glass box. And there was Lenin on the right, and you passed by and didn't say a word. Like there were these holy, sainted figures. And I came out really shook. I mean, I was shaking. Because I'm 14, but I knew that these two men were among the greatest mass murderers, the most evil people that have ever existed on the face of this earth. And here they would be treated as moral heroes, moral demigods. And why people would worship evil, uh, I haven't really got an answer to that to this day. I just knew it happened. And I remembered the ballpoint pen. And I said, you know, to myself, any country that can't make a ballpoint pen can be had. We can beat these people. We don't have to put up with and um so um uh, and then i you know of course i'm 14 and i'm a teenager and, you know i kind of forgot about that i i had this fantasy about you know organized I, then came oh yeah it came the the uh, hungarian revolution and um i realized uh i thought about the hungarian revolution and i realized that the reason that the Soviets were able to crush it is that only Hungary rebelled. Only Hungary. And so the Soviets were able to squash it, and Eisenhower wasn't able to do anything about it. And I thought, you know, if only all of the colonies could rise up. And so they couldn't push them down. They couldn't squash them all. Then you'd have a chance. Then they'd have a chance. And I had a fantasy about that, which I probably forgot. It's like, you know, I mean, I'm a teenager, right? 15, 16, I guess the girls were more interesting. So, so uh, you know, et cetera. So um, kind of majored in, majored in <laughs> too much beer and you know, too many dating girls in, the, in high school and college. It's a, well, in college, actually. But at any rate, um, then I read Ayn Rand, um, and um, that was revelatory to me as well. Um, I'll never forget, usually the financial show, um, uh, probably one of the greatest intellectual experiences in my life, certainly my young life, was reading um, Francisco D'Anconi's speech on money in, in Atlas Shrugged. 
and because finally somebody had um, provided a moral defense of capitalism. Obviously, it's the most practical system. It's the only system that actually works and creates prosperity. Uh, but uh, the, the, the left is always attacking it morally. Oh, it's exploitation and all this other stuff. And she gave a moral defense that I've always wanted to, always wanted to hear. So, uh, that got me interested in philosophy. And I ended up, um, getting a PhD in philosophy, uh, primarily Aristotle. I was, uh, Rand turned me on to Aristotle and I realized this is my home. Uh, Aristotle to me still to this day is the greatest thinker that ever lived. Uh, and, um, uh, he has, uh, a moral way of looking at things, uh, that is very similar to, to Randian philosophy, by the way. Um, and, uh, so I got a PhD in philosophy, uh, but I didn't want to teach philosophy. I decided I wanted to, um, have an adventurous life. And so, um, I'd had one already, uh, when I was 16, I was a beginning student in anthropology back then. I uh, talked my way into getting adopted by a tribe of uh, Hebrew head hunters in the Amazon, the tribe that makes shrunken heads. They actually adopted me. I was all by myself, 16. And uh, it's just been one adventure after another. Uh, so I formed a adventure uh, company, Wheeler Expeditions, and um, I started taking people to the North Pole. I wrote a book called The Adventurer's Guide because back then there were no adventure travel companies. If you wanted to uh, climb the mountain or live with the headhunters or explore out of Mongolia, how do you do that? Um, now there's plenty of companies, but we're, <laughs> we're the oldest. Um, at any rate, uh, I wrote a book because people write books about their adventures. They went up the river and met the tribe and climbed the mountain or whatever, and then that's that. But they never tell you how you can do that yourself. So my book, The Adventurer's Guide, was how to swim the Hellespont, live the headers, and hunt a man the tiger, and explore out of Mongolia, etc. And then you could, how to, how to do that yourself. How you could do those things. Uh, so that was a unique, kind of unique book that got me started. Got me on Johnny Carson and Mark Griffin and all these shows, and that got my business started. And I started taking people to the North Pole and leading elephants over the Alps and uh, finding lost tribes in New Guinea and uh, uh, other places. I have three first contacts now. Uh, one with the one with the Alcas, the Alka Ashiri in the uh, Amazon, um, and uh, one a tribe, uh, a cannibal tribe um, called the Wali Alifo in uh, New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, and uh, one with a band of uh, Bushmen in the uh, in the Kalahari. A very, very extraordinary experience every time. So, Jack, when I'm doing my research on you, and I read, like, I've got a, it's like a timeline of these incredible events that you've done, and all these things that you've accomplished during your life. And then I came across this quote, because I did see that you had done your PhD in, in um, philosophy, in Aristotelian ethics. And I want to read it, and I think that this kind of puts things in perspective, and I would like to hear your opinion about it. So... A life of Udemia is a life of striving. It's a life of pushing yourself to your limits and finding success. 
a uodemic life it will be a uodemic life will be full of happiness that comes from achieving something really difficult rather than just having it handed to you i think that's so brilliant because when i look at all of these things that you've accomplished jack is that something that you that you live by achieving something really difficult like what does that mean to you well i don't know about difficult but that's a very restrictive statement the term is eudaimonia um and eudaimonia is an aristotelian term uh of aristotle's you read all about it in the nicomachean ethics uh but um it's normally translated as happiness and that is a mistranslation because um happiness when we use that word um it's used uh, to what is it as a as a category as an aristotelian category and it, we use it as a state it's a state of being and for aristotle happiness is not a state of being it is an activity the word that he used used was energeia eudaimonia is an energeia it is activity it is the doing of life and it is not something you go out to achieve i'm going to climb that mountain and i'm going to be and what else are you going to do well i'm also going to be happy no 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 then work that way you only you only can get to happiness indirectly by doing other things by doing things in the doing and doing this and the achievement you are happy thereby um so i think that is what the the uh author of that quote is getting at the difficulty uh, i I'm not sure about that. Um I've never looked at the things that um I've done are difficult. There are things that I wanted to do. <laughs> you know, I mean skydiving in the North Pole was that difficult? Well, no. I, you know, it was just something that I aimed for. I learned how to do it. I got good at it and I had the greatest time doing it. and actually jumping out of an airplane by myself 8000 feet or on the over the arctic ocean exactly at 90 north the north pole uh that's an experience that will stay with me forever i just can't imagine how to describe the power of that experience but was it a difficult thing no so uh i'm not sure about the difficulty But this is interesting because I think back to my own life Jack and I think about what happiness is. Like for me, if I could have been happy in my hometown, you know, with a white picket fence and and living a quote unquote normal life, I think about how how easy that would have been. But for myself, like I started traveling as a teenager and went exploring and for me to find happiness, I had to be on the road. I had to travel. I had to do these things that a lot of people would say is very difficult now i don't know which side i kind of fall on if if i think with you the thing think the same as you is is it difficult but certainly the paths that we have chosen are are quite different than anyone else that you're going to find on the planet 
Well, there you go. That's the difference. Uh, we're all unique individuals. Every single human being that is on the planet right now, that has ever lived or ever will live, is completely unique. You have completely unique DNA. And, the, and you have a completely set, different set of experiences that, and choices that determine your life. But to get back to the Aristotelian context, um, Aristotle would say that um, he takes things individually. He talks for the famous thing about the golden mean. Okay? Well, the golden mean of a balance between too much and too little. Too much courage would be recklessness. Too little courage would be timidity, for example. Okay? Well, he said everybody is different. Milo the wrestler needs a certain amount of food to maintain his energy. But that's not the same for everybody else and not the same for or the average person. So uh, there are people that um, the white picket fence and a normal, what we would call a normal, regular, middle-class life and, and married family, kids, etc. Well, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful thing. And that's appropriate for uh, many people. Uh, in a genetic context, to tell you the truth, uh, quite frankly, I've always thought we have uh, the two categories of people. There's many, many categories, but among them are two. Uh, one are explorer genes and stay-at-home genes. We need both. We need both kind of people. And for a, for a stable society, the people who want to go out there and see what's over the horizon and figure things out. That's why we started out in Africa and spread all over the earth, uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, but then people got to keep the home fires burning. And so it depends upon the individual and what is right for them. And that's an individual choice. They've got to figure that out. Now, as far as the difficulty in that quote you mentioned, well, it's good to kind of challenge yourself. It's good to stretch yourself. It's good to push the envelope, but not, but be careful. I mean, don't do things that are too wild, too reckless for you. You've really got to know yourself and really got to know what you're, what you're capable of and what really is your right balance for you and your life. And that's different for everybody. So how do you find out things like that? How do you, how would you ever know what is the balance for yourself? Doing activity in your day. Uh, you don't sit there and, you know, meditate on your navel. You know, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, you're always thinking of, uh, well, for me, it, what would be really cool to do? <laughs> what would be really, really cool to do? What would I really, really, what would be really neat? And with my business, I think what would other people that I know and that with my kind of people would really think is cool to like, for example. The hottest thing we do right now is our Himalaya helicopter expedition. People think of going to Mount Everest. You know, you trek to Mount Everest for two weeks, two weeks at, at altitude. It's a difficult trek, okay? And, but the frustrating thing is you never see the mountain <laughs> because Everest is always hidden by big mountains in the way. 
there's one well, one little place where you can kind of see it. It's a it's a viewpoint called Kalapatar, and you can see it. Uh, but what about all the other great mountains of the Himalayas? Kanchenjunga, Daulagiri, Annapurna, Makalu, Manaslu, etc. Why, those mountains, well, nobody ever treks to all the great mountains of the Himalayas. So I figured a way to do it by helicopter. And when you do it by helicopter, you see the mountains in a way you can't see on the ground. It's like unbelievable. You only, not even climbers see the mountain the way we do. And we go to all eight of the highest mountains in the Himalayas by helicopter. And it is just the most mind-blowing experience. I mean, we do it in the spring and the fall. Late April, early May, and late October, early November. And um, I can hardly wait. Hardly wait every time. It is the most mind-blowing experience, and it changes people's lives. And uh, being, being able... Yeah, being able to give people experiences like that, I don't just take people on expeditions and adventures. I take them on experiences they will never forget for the rest of their lives. That's the kind of experience that I want. That's the kind of experience I want to give people. Experience they tell their grandchildren about, and their grandchildren would, would say, you know, my granddad or my grandmom, you wouldn't believe what they did. They tell that to their kids. Uh, those are the kinds of experiences that I want and uh, ring my bell. Um, and that's what I've been doing all my life. Well, it's interesting because I own a very small travel agency and I was talking to my staff when I was doing the research for the, your interview and they're like, but we run tours as well. I'm like, yeah, but we run like bus tours and we run, you know, safaris, but they're, you know, they're staying in like five-star hotels. And it's like, what we do is cool. Like, we have some awesome stuff, but I'm like, this is quite different. Very, very different, I would say. Well, you know, uh, I'm a fan of five-star hotels. I mean, we get out there in the bush or the Gobi Desert or uh, the Tibetan Plateau. Okay, great, fan. But when we get back to civilization, I want to stay in the best hotel there is. I mean, I think the person who invented uh, hot shower is one of the great benefactors of man mankind. I mean, I have, I think civilization is great. <laughs> I don't want to live in a cave, you know, and uh, uh, and I don't want uh, anybody to do to my country what uh, uh, the socials have done to Venezuela. I mean, civilization and capitalism and prosperity is wonderful. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, so that's great. But, uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what we do. Uh, we do, we do things that, uh, really get out there and, uh, it really explore the world. Well, I agree with you a hundred percent. And it's just interesting to kind of hear the, the background and the motivation and where things like this started from. Because even when I look back at my own life, it's hard to put things in sequential order and how they came about. When did I start pushing the boundaries? Like, what did I do in my life that led me to travel so extensively? And for me to hear other people's lives and what what was the catalyst in theirs and, and what they spent their time doing, like you, for example, getting your PhD in ethics is is, is very, very interesting because it's not the first thing that would come to mind when I think of... Uh, 
and I I won't use the the quote that uh, embarrassed you earlier, but but someone who uh, is an explorer. So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or eBooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. Well, you know, for me, it's kind of all the same. Um, you know, knowing more about the world and understanding about the world. I didn't get into philosophy uh, to, um, uh, to teach, like most people do. They get a PhD in philosophy, and that's what they teach. Um, I wanted to be able to think clearly, you know, I mean, um, I'll give you a very small prosaic example, but I'm sure you get this stuff too, but because we all do, somebody sends you some email that they've heard that some amazing, oh, you won't believe this thing. And, uh, they send it out to everybody in their email list. And, uh, uh, I just have a very good detector of stuff like that. I see something smells, you know. I mean, ever so often, okay, there's something to it, but most of the time, it's a hoax, some email hoax. And I have to write my friend and say, don't do this. You know, don't send out stuff that check it out first. Make sure, rather than, oh, well, look at this. Everybody would like to know about this. And, it, and, and, um, uh, so I've had to come down and some of my friends said, please, don't, don't do this. You know, don't you, this is about the third time you've done it. Don't do it anymore. Uh, I've got a, philosophy teaches you if you do it right, uh, it teaches you how to think clearly. And also there's another thing. <laughs> the, the more that I studied, I mean, I went through Oriental philosophy. I went through every great philosopher in the history of Western civilization, etc. And I came to the conclusion there is absolutely nothing so absurd and so ridiculous and so unbelievable that some philosopher somewhere, sometime, hasn't seriously advocated it as true. It's, it, it's just amazing. So, uh, that, the whole study of philosophy, my, the main benefit was to enable me to, to think, I like to think pretty, uh, uh pretty clear, uh, about things and uh, to use reason and logic and to understand the world. 
And having understanding the world of reason and logic is a very handy thing to have when you're exploring it. I think about my own quest, I suppose, to understand the world. And it is interesting when you read philosophy and Obviously, everybody who is writing philosophy believes that their way is is correct and just and moral. Um, but it, it is true that a lot of it is ridiculous. Like, and, and we can talk about socialism or or communism, which I know you've had a lot of dealings with in your life. Um, you know, those types of philosophies, like they're they're clearly broken. They clearly do not work. Um, so, how did you? start on Aristotle? Like what, what initially drew you to that type of ethics and philosophy and understanding? Well, um, first, I, reading Atlas Shrugged and reading Ayn Rand, and she made many references to Aristotle. Um, and she also made references uh, a lot to an economist named Ludwig von Mises. I don't know if you're Maybe familiar with Barnes. Oh, absolutely! I've read several of his books. It's mind-blowing stuff. Uh, when I was a graduate student, I started up a correspondence with Barnes, and um, this was in the late '60s. And uh, he invited me to come and see him. So I was I was a graduate student at the University of Hawaii at the time, and I saved up all my money and bought a, a cheap ticket to L.A. And a Greyhound bus ticket that allowed you to ride all over the United States for a month for 99 bucks. And I rode a bus clean across the United States and spent a weekend with Ludwig von Mises at his home in a place called Franconia Notch. Had a cabin up there in New Hampshire. He signed my copy of Human Action. And it was a very profound, for me, very, very profound. Uh, and von Mises was, uh, was an Aristotelian too. Uh, but when I started reading uh, Aristotle, uh, uh, the politics, the rhetoric, uh, the metaphysics, and particularly uh, the Nicomachean ethics, I just, because I'm studying all the time, the Greeks have always called me because they're the founders of Western civilization. Um, and uh, uh, so I wrote my doctoral thesis on uh Greek ethics, but primarily leading up to Aristotelian ethics. And uh, that would just did it for me. I mean, that's that's it. That's never gotten better ever since, as far, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the Declaration of Independence is a very Aristotelian document, for example. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, the Aristotelian outlook on life has just uh, has helped me has helped me a great deal that must have been quite of an experience to meet Mises how old were you then how old mm. um it was um I was I have to go over and get it there's a letter there he wrote to me and it was 1969 so I was um uh 25. Yes, about 25. Wow. What an influential person to meet at that age. My goodness. That would just... I, I read his work now, and um, I'm just so surprised that things like this are not taught in schools, or at least in the schools that I saw. Right. 
Right. So, yeah, it is the greatest economic mind that ever was. Um, so I would encourage all your listeners, if they aren't familiar with Levy by Mises, M-I-S-E-S, Levy by Mises, uh, his magnum opus is Human Action, but uh, there's a great little book called Bureaucracy. There is a, a last paragraph in Bureaucracy. It's a small book. Uh, he talks about how liberals will end up calling themselves progressives. And this was written in 1948. <laughs> so he's well worth, uh, well worth reading. I'd also suggest they read uh, The Anti-Capitalistic Mentality. The Anti-Capitalist Mentality. I haven't read that one myself. Yeah, that's a short book. It's short, just like bureaucracy. They're very well worth reading. But if you really want to get into it, just holy Toledo, uh, read uh, Human Action. That's awesome as well that at 25 years old, you send someone like that a letter and strike up a correspondence and go and visit him. Like, I can't think of, I don't know of any people, I don't know if I should say this, but I don't know anyone at the age of 20 felt at the age of 25 who would do something like that today. That's not good. <laughs> that, I hope that's not, I hope that's not true about our younger on our younger generation, I know my sons, uh, our youngest son, uh, is um, 25, well, he's 26 now. <laughs> the years go by so fast, but uh, he sure will. So he's got that. He's got that. So, Jack, I have been told by my friend and mentor, Joel Nagel, that I need to ask you about your time with Reagan. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, 1965, uh, I was a graduating senior at uh, UCLA, and uh, Reagan came to give a speech, and there was all this buzz that he was going to run for governor. And uh, he gave the speech, and everybody, whether they disagreed or not, completely respectful, you know, very respectful, and unlike today, of course. At any rate, what he said was, you know, this political spectrum of left and right, I don't understand. Communism on the left, fascism on the right, I don't get it. Fascism, Nazism, communism, I don't get it. My political spectrum is up and down. Up towards individual freedom, down towards control of the individual by the state. So in my political spectrum, all forms of totalitarianism, whether they are fascism or Nazism or communism, Marxism, all of them belong at the bottom of the spectrum, control of the individual by the state. And I am an advocate of individual freedom on the upside, but I'm certainly no anarchist, no government at all. We have to have a government. I believe in a government with the rule of law and a constitution that gives that protects the individual, the, the rights of the individual. And that's where I am on this. And I turned to a friend of mine and I said, that settles that. And he said, settles what? And I said, that's my guy. I've always wanted to hear that said. Always. See, when, when, uh, when I was, you know, the episode of the Soviet Union, I mean, 
I, what I never understood. I, it was a puzzle to me. And I've, I've, maybe I've got it figured out to some degree now, but, you know, I knew that I never saw a difference between Nazism and communism. Never. I mean, they're both forms of fascist control over individual, a crushing of individual freedom. I mean, why would they think they're any different? Now, I can explain the difference, by the way, and we'll get in, maybe we'll get in that later. But, um, at any rate, uh, I came home that weekend, and my father, he's a producer, and he was a well-known person in, in, uh, in, in Karen Hollywood. Um, I, I asked him if he knew Ronald Reagan. He said, well, yeah. I mean, he was, he was an actor back then. I mean, he was not Ronald Reagan, you know, Ronald, Ronaldus Magnus, you know. So, um, I said, well, dad, he gave this speech and I, I just can't get over it. And I wonder if I could meet him. Now, I don't know what I was saying. I just, you know, how, what happens is, some, you just find the words coming out of your mouth and you wonder where the hell that came from, you know. Um, but I found myself saying it. And he saw that something, see, we had met so many people. I mean, Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra and you, know, you name it. I mean, John Way, I mean, all kinds of people. And it was great. It was cool to meet these people. But I never asked to meet anybody. And that was the first one. And so he called him up. And he said, "Hey, Ron, this is Jackson, uh, Jackson Wheeler, my father." And it's my my son. Hey, Jackson, how are you? And, oh, my son heard your speech at UCLA, and he he's really taken by it, and he, he wanted to meet you. Well, come on over. So okay, he got in the car and drove over to the Pacific Palisades, and and uh, there he was. Nancy wasn't there, and uh, it was just him and a, uh, an assistant or something. And um, I remember saying, now him, him explaining, what he said, I can't remember, to tell you the truth. What I remember is he put his hands up when he was done, he was sitting in an easy chair, and he put his hands up, and he said, and that's the way I feel. And I said, Mr. Reagan, you know, I have to tell you, this is exactly how I feel. And I know that you're running for governor, or if you decide to run for governor, if there's anything I can do, I would do it to help you. Well, here's a kid in college, you know, telling the man what's run for governor. And, and I didn't know what I was doing, by the way, because as soon as I graduate, I got to get back to, believe it or not, Vietnam, where I had a business, an export business. And I had no, I had no business at all, you know, saying something like this. But my father ended up going to Vietnam, running the business while I was while I was working for Ronald Reagan, he offered me to be state chairman of Youth for Reagan. And um, we had this amazing time, the original Ronald Reagan for governor campaign in 19, spring of 1966, what an extraordinary time. And um, then I had to get back to Vietnam, but there were all these kids. But I got to spend that, that whole spring, we drove around because Reagan hated to fly. You'd never fly in an airplane without four engines. And and so a lot of the stuff was driving. And I drove all over the place with him. Uh, it was, there's nobody like Ronald Reagan. There's, I met a lot of famous people, a lot of famous celebrities, and I've never met anybody like Ronald Reagan. 
a depth. There was this gravitas uh, that he had that nobody else had. Um, is a magic person. But at any rate, uh, there were all these kids and youth were right. We became just buddies. Many of us are still buddies to this day. But, okay, I'm not in politics. I help Ronald Reagan. And so now I got a business to run and I got, I got a PhD to get and, you know, etc. And so, uh, I never want to be in politics. Uh, but a lot of those other kids, they stuck around. And by 1980, 15 years later, 1981, Ronald Reagan is president of the United States and they are in the White House. And all of a sudden, that old fantasy of mine came about, about, you know, organizing or helping to organize rebellions against the Soviet Union. And um, so I told one of my friends, I said, you know, you know that map I have? I'm looking at the map right now, as a matter of fact. The map I have in my study with all those lines on it where I've been in the world? He said, yeah. I said, the map really looks different to me. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, uh, Dana's, the guy's name is Dana Robach. Uh, Dana, um, you know, we know what's going on in Afghanistan. That's just blown up. Soviets are starting to have a difficulty there. Something going on in Nicaragua. But there's also something going on in Angola and Mozambique. I keep hearing these things. I'm doing a lot of research on it. And all of a sudden, it's dawning on me, Dana, that there is a worldwide rebellion against the Soviet Union emerging. And he said, what? And I said, I'm telling you, man, I, I smell it. I smell it. Uh, I, I know the world fairly well. Of course, this was a long time ago. It was 1983. And uh, he said, well, nobody here, meaning the White House, said anything like this. I never heard anything like that. What are you going to do about it? I said, you know, Dan, I'll be right back. <laughs> so, so I raised some money. I formed this little foundation. I raised some money. And, and um, I was gone for six months. And I talked my way into all of these girl wars. And um, I came back to the White House with all these pictures. And... Um, there was a big meeting. It was November of 83. And, uh, there were West Wingers and agency people and all kinds of, all kinds of people. And, uh, National Security Council. And I showed them all these pictures and they'd never seen the pictures. They just read stuff, you know? They just read stuff. But it's just ink on paper. The pictures. I said, I told them stories about the people. You know, what happened? This is his name. There's a young boy named Amin. He picked up what looked like a toy in Afghanistan, blew his hands off. It's a Soviet butterfly bomb made to name kids like this. This is what they're doing. And I said, there really is a rebellion emerging, not everywhere, but in a number of Soviet colonies. Because the Soviet colonial empire has a structure to it. And if we support the entire phenomenon of resistance to Soviet colonialism, why we can assault the structure of the Soviet colonial empire, not just have one thing for Afghanistan and one thing for Nicaragua, and it wouldn't be great if they got a new government. Great. 
But we want the Soviet colonial empire gone. Like the English colonial empire, the Dutch colonial empire. They're gone. We want it gone. And this is the way to do it. And that was the birth of what the press called the Reagan And so that's what I did in the 80s. I just went out to all these groups and came back and told the White House and briefed everybody on. And, and uh, and that's how the Reagan doctrine got started. And uh, then it moved into uh, Eastern Europe, uh, just as I had, had predicted. Uh, but then it wasn't, you know, Stinger missiles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to the Afghans. It was fax machines <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, but because uh, solidarity had gotten going and, and all the other groups. Well, from my understanding, you actually helped connect a lot of these different groups together and what was it, had a conference or had a, a meeting so that different resistant leaders could could know and understand each other so they were not alone? Yes, we had it in, um, it was called the Jamba Conference, and that was, um, um, I'm pretty sure it was 86, um, you know, right around there. But we did. We brought people from the Contras and the Afghans and Angola, uh, and um, uh, people from uh, uh, Europe, etc., resistance, uh, resistance movements, and uh, uh, Jamba was the center of um, guerrilla-occupied territory in Angola, in southeastern uh, Angola, and um, uh, that was uh, really something. It got a lot of, lot of coverage, but... Um, uh, yeah, that was uh, how it all got started. That's incredible. That is just such a moment in history for, for all of humankind. That's unbelievable, Jack. Yeah, it, um, yeah I, remember, <laughs> I remember giving a speech at the Heritage Foundation. It was in May of 1989. And I had been giving this talk, variants of it, since 84, all over the United States, business groups, colleges, who freak out. But the coming collapse of the Soviet Union, or the coming collapse of the Soviet Empire, two different variations. And people didn't believe it. I mean, like, what? Well, it'd be great, but never in my lifetime. Uh, it was just impossible to believe. And I said, well, here's how it's going to happen. And so in May of 89, I gave this talk, and this is the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is the conservative headquarters, right? And I told them that the Berlin Wall would be down in a couple of years. And they laughed. They all laughed. And I smiled, and I said, you know, folks, it doesn't bother me that you laugh at all. Doesn't bother me at all. I just have one request. That you remember that I said this on this day. You remember this. That I said it. Because it's going to be in two years or less. Well, it's down six months. <laughs> November. November 9th, 1989. World Freedom Day, Berlin Wall. So it was this, I, I told him about the myth of invincibility. 
that there was this myth that the Soviet Union is so mighty and so powerful there's nothing that could be done. And Ronald Reagan didn't believe that. He sure did. And uh, so uh, I just took that run with Brandon. Well, this has been fascinating, Jack, because we kind of started the conversation speaking about your personal philosophy and how that developed, and then really how that led you to liberty and freedom and and capitalism. So talk to me a little bit about the things that you want to do going forwards, the things that you're passionate about, the things that you're passionate about today, the things that you want to to accomplish next, because I would say, I would guess that you're not done. <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first, the world um, is a very, very big place. And there is this thing about, all oh, the world's getting smaller. No, 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 no. The world should always be getting bigger. Always be getting bigger for you. There's more to know, more to learn, more to experience. Just take any country. You name any country on the map. And it's really looks small on the map. Okay? And you get there and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, there's so much more I didn't know about. And it and it expands in your mind. Before it was this little blip on the map, and now it's this huge place in your mind. The world should always be getting bigger and you'd never run out of things. You could live a thousand years and you never learn an experience at all, not even close. Um, so there's a lot of that. There's always things that I'm thinking of, you know, um, cool stuff to do in the world that would ring people's bells that they haven't liked to have that experience with me. Um, whether it's the Australian outback or, <coughs> or, or climbing the Karsten's pyramid in New Guinea or scuba diving, the greatest scuba diving areas in the world or, uh, exploring Kamchatka in Siberia, or and it just goes on and on and on. It's it's endless. Um, so that's what we do at Wheeler Expeditions. People are free to um, uh, log on to our website, wheelerexpeditions.com, all one word, wheelerexpeditions.com, um, and check us out. And if they'd like uh, uh, to go on an adventure with us, uh, a real adventure, a real experience, why? Uh, uh, we do all different kinds. They don't have to be rough and ready. Uh, they, some are just plain fun. <laughs> uh, so we're going to, uh, three magic Atlantic paradises in the Atlantic Ocean that the people may not be familiar with. And that's just plain fun. Um, the other thing though is that, uh, I've got uh, two books to write. I'm writing, uh, one book, um, uh, the working title is Overcoming the Evil Eye. Um, if there's one thing that I would like people to understand about what makes the world tick, at least, uh, at least, uh, politically, it's, uh, it's this, the greatest, one of the most dominating social forces, uh, malevolent, Social, the most malevolent social force in the world is envy. Um, and, um, most of the, well, all three of the great, uh, curses of modern times, when I say curses in the last 70, 80, 90 years, um, 
are religions of envy. Uh, communism is class-based envy. The rich exploitative bourgeois, the rich exploitative rich, like Alexandria Cortez or whatever her name is, says. Uh, uh, Nazism is the same thing. But instead of a class-based envy, it's a race-based envy. Those rich, exploitative Jews. And if you just substitute Jews and bourgeois, you get an equivalence. They demonize Jews because they're in a race. The, the communists demonize capitalists because they're in a class thing, and the whole exploitation thing. Like you can't get rich without making somebody else poor. It's like saying you can't be healthy unless you make somebody else sick. Yeah, people don't understand it's not a zero-sum game. Try, try that on. I mean, how stupid would that be? But that's that's the essence of Marxism. Um, that wealth is, they don't understand, wealth is created, we get it at any rate. And, but uh, the same thing with uh, Islamic uh, terrorism, Islamic graphism. It's all an envy trip. The rich, exploitative West. They can't stand it. They're envious. But that's really not the problem because, uh, I mean, the Bible tells us not to envy. And it does no good. The Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not envy, thou shalt not covet. Okay? That's the Tenth Commandment. And it's never been obeyed. And there's no, nobody ever does anything about it. Just say, don't envy, you shouldn't envy. Um, the real, the real thing is what I call the fear of being envied. And that is a hard grasp to, to hold on to. The fear of being envied. And I'll give you an example. Uh, there is a tribe in the Amazon on the border between Venezuela and Brazil. They're called the Yanomamo. And the Yanomamo, when a Yanomamo woman gives birth to a baby, she will call out in this loud lament, making sure everybody in the village hears her. Oh, my baby is so ugly. Why have the gods cursed me with this ugly baby? Oh, so ugly. Wail, 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 cry. And that is so. The her villagers will not envy her happiness over her beautiful little child. Uh, people hold themselves down. They apologize for themselves. People apologize for their existence. They apologize for being what anything now, but particularly American, because they feel the envy directed towards America. And so they're always apologizing for America. They're always putting America down. They're always criticizing it because they're afraid of the envy of others. And so I am writing about this and the solution how to overcome it because no, envy has no control over it's like voodoo. Uh, it, if you don't know that voodoo, you don't care. Somebody's making a dolly and sticking needles in it. Thank you for sharing. I would, you know, go play in the traffic. Um, 
why uh, that has no effect, right? It has no effect. They're they're impotent, and so to impotize, if that's a correct term, <laughs> make impotent um, uh, the whole envy trip, whether it be is. Islamic or fascist or communist or Nazi or whatever uh, is not be afraid of the envy. Uh, and um, uh, that's what I'm writing about. It's overcoming the evil eye. Because the evil eye is the evil eye of envy. Black magic. All black magic is envious magic. It's based on envy. So, and all socialism based on that. So at any rate, uh, I've got to write that. I'm writing that book now. That's the next book. That sounds fantastic. I am definitely picking that up because I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Jack, today's conversation has been absolutely fascinating. If my listeners want to learn more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Uh, WheelerExpeditions.com. Fantastic. And I'll make sure I put the links to everything we talked about in at the show notes at expatmoneyshow.com. Jack, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, great. Mikkel, this has been fun. I really appreciate your inviting me on your show. I think we've had a great time. And I want to thank you very much. My pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jack. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Mikkel here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.